Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 7, Esther, chapters 5 and 6. We are in Esther chapter 5. And as we began to examine it last week, we found Esther in the inner courtyard of the the palace, going there unannounced and uninvited. Esther has forced this confrontation with the king at the urging of her stepfather, Mordecai, in hopes of saving her Jewish people from annihilation. And according to Persian law, a decision must be made on the spot by the king whether to offer her clemency for her appearing without being summoned or to dismiss her with the only penalty possible for her trespass being death. Now last week we read this chapter in only its Hebrew version. This week let's read it with the Greek editions included. Now I'm going to be reading from the Jerusalem Bible, which by the way is an excellent resource for serious Bible students. So here we go. Unless you've got a special version, you're not going to have this. So this is Esther chapter 5 with the Greek editions. On the third day, when she had finished praying, she took off her supplicant's morning attire and dressed herself in her full splendor. Radiant as she then appeared, she invoked God, who watches over all men and saves them. Then she took two maids with her. With a delicate air, she leaned on one while the other accompanied her, carrying her train. She leaned on the maid's arm as though languidly, but in fact, because her body was too weak to support her. The other maid followed her mistress, lifting her robes which swept the ground. Rosy with the full flush of her beauty, her face radiated joy and love, but her heart shrank with fear. Having passed through door after door, she found herself in the presence of the king, and he was seated on the royal throne, dressed in all his robes of state, glittering with gold and precious stones, a formidable sight. Raising his face, afire with majesty, he looked on her, blazing with anger, and the queen sank down. And she grew faint, and the color drained from her face, and she leaned her head against the maid who accompanied her. But God had changed the king's heart, inducing a milder spirit. He sprang from his throne in alarm, and he took her in his arms until she recovered, comforting her with soothing words. What's the matter, Esther? He said, I'm your brother. Take heart, you will not die. Our order only applies to ordinary people. Come to me. And raising his golden scepter, he laid it on her neck and embraced her and said, Speak to me. My Lord, she said, you look to me like an angel of God. My heart was moved with fear of your majesty. For you are a figure of wonder, my Lord, and your face is full of graciousness. But as she spoke, she fell down in a faint. The king was distressed and all of his attendants tried their best to revive her. 
What is the matter, Queen Esther? The king said. Tell me what you desire, even if it's half my kingdom I granted to you. Would the king be pleased, Esther replied, to come with Haman today to the banquet I have prepared for him? And the king said, Tell Haman to come at once, so that Esther may have her wish. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared, and as they drank their wine, the king again said to Esther, Tell me what what is your request. I grant it to you. Tell me what you desire, even if it's half my kingdom, it's yours for the asking. What do I desire? What do I request? Esther replied, If I have found favor in the king's eyes, if it is his pleasure to grant what I ask, to agree to my request, then let the king and Haman come to another banquet. I intend to give them tomorrow. Then I will do as the king says. Haman left full of joy, high spirits that day. But when he saw Mordecai at the chancellery, neither standing up nor stirring at his approach, he felt a gush of anger. He restrained himself, however. Returning home, he sent for his friends and uh, Zeresh's wife and held forth to them about his dazzling wealth, his many children, how the king had raised him to a position of honor and promoted him over the heads of the king's administrators and ministers. What is more, he added, Queen Esther just invited me and the king and no one else except me to a banquet that she was giving and better still, she has invited me and the king again tomorrow. But what do I care about all this when all the while I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting there at the chancellery? Have a 50 cubic gallows run up, Zeresh's wife and all his friends said. And in the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then accompany the king to the feast without a care in the world. Delighted with this advice, Haman had the gallows erected. These Greek editions are interspersed between verses 1 and 4. And again, the purpose is to introduce the name of God into the book of Esther because it's otherwise missing. And it also is to introduce some spin that makes Esther a reluctant, frail, terrorized Jewish woman who stands before a cold, menacing, egocentric Gentile king who's also her husband. And the Greek edition says she leaned on her maid's arm as though languidly, but in fact it was because her body was too weak to support her. Her heart shrank with fear. And as she approaches her husband, we read, she grew faint and the color drained from her face and she leaned her head against the maid who accompanied her. And next, concerning King Xerxes, the Greek says his face afire with majesty. He looked upon uh, her blazing with anger. However, God intervened. And then God changed the king's heart, giving him a milder spirit. I can't accept these additions. Nowhere in the Hebrew version of Esther have we seen the king as anything but kind to Esther when she's in his presence. Nowhere do we find a cowering Jewish girl who was kidnapped and robbed of her freedom, placed kicking and screaming into a royal harem, forced to become the wife of the most powerful ruler on earth, and subsequently forced to become the queen of the world. And now she turns to jelly at the mere thought of addressing her husband. 
does make for good theater. And it does paint this Gentile king as a barbarian and a brute. The Hebrew version shows us a courageous, humble, committed Esther who after three days of fasting and prayer knows that the Lord is with her and she is ready to accept whatever is her fate. The Greek, however, has a whimpering, weak, unsure female that well fits the Greek stereotype for women in general. The Hebrew version shows a king who's glad that his beautiful wife has come to, come to him. And he treats her in a respectful manner even though she broke protocol and wasn't formally invited. And he is so taken by her courage and her stateliness to come that he sees it as a compliment to him. So he responds with affection, with generosity towards her. The Greek, however, makes him a typical, ill-tempered, impatient potentate who initially rails at this woman for showing up and upsetting his day and would have her head removed if it weren't for God miraculously and instantaneously changing the king's mind. Some of these additions don't even make sense. Mere handmaidens? lowly servants accompany Esther into the inner court of the palace where none but the highest authorities and wealthiest of the empire may appear, may appear and only then if invited? My goodness, in the next chapter we find Haman, second in command over the Persian Empire, pacing around in the outer court of the palace hoping that the king will allow him in. The king is open to hearing why Esther has come and he assumes that she has a request. And her request, at least for the moment, is only that the king and his second-in-command, Haman, come to a private banquet that she's prepared. And he, of course, has no idea what the issue behind all of this might be, but Esther is most wise in arranging a private audience. After all, the matter is delicate. It's nothing that the palace guards and the king's advisors need to hear about. Now verse 5 has the king quickly accepting. He's kind of proven to be an impulsive man. And he tells one of his servants to go fetch Haman and bring him immediately so that the two of them can attend Esther's banquet. Or, as I choose to characterize it, We have a king who is thankful to have an excuse to get away from all this boring and tedious affairs of state. Dealing with the self-serving agendas of the endless line of aristocrats who seek his favor every day. And instead, just go hang out with his lovely wife for a few hours and have a nice, quiet, pleasant meal and some wine. And as verse 6 says, At the banquet of wine... The king again asked Esther what she was seeking. This banquet of wine probably doesn't mean that the only thing served at Esther's banquet was wine, but rather that this was the pre-meal time when wine was customarily served. And let's face it, Esther no doubt wanted the king to be in a relaxed and happy mood. And what better way to achieve that than a few glasses of wine to start things off? So the king repeats his offer of willingness to grant whatever he requests, no matter how large, up to half his kingdom being an expression. It's not an offer of co-regency. But 
Esther is coy. She didn't want to hurry matters. So she suggests yet another get-together. Now the subtle message that she's hoping that her husband perceives is that her time with him is more important to her than the issue at hand. No doubt the objective is to disarm the king and to make him even more amenable to considering her request, which is going to be a difficult one. But she is also carefully including the unsuspecting Haman, Haman, who's going to let down his guard, thinking how wonderful it is that the queen sees the king and Haman as this inseparable team now. After all, we've seen that Haman craves, he demands the respect and the adulation of everyone. And so Esther is intentionally feeding that craving. Now a lot's happening very quickly. After three days of fasting, the very next day, Esther approaches the king, and on that same day, he comes to Esther's banquet. The day after that will be another banquet. So while the first chapters of Esther take place over months and years, we're dealing with hours right now. Well, on the day of the first banquet, Haman leaves feeling on top of the world. The honors he is receiving, he feels he deserves, but nonetheless he's giddy over having achieved so much of his hopes and dreams of power and position to go along with his vast wealth. But his giddiness is short-lived thanks to that stubborn old man, Haman, or rather, Mordecai the Jew. And as Haman leaves the company of the king and queen, he walks by the king's gate on his way home, and there sits Mordecai. After the three days of fasting, Mordecai has exchanged his sackcloth for his regular attire. He's back on duty is at, his, at his assigned place of operation, the king's gate. The key word is sitting. Because as Haman approaches, Mordecai remains seated. And the words of verse 9, that Mordecai neither rose nor even moved towards Haman, mean that Mordecai simply ignored Haman. He never even acknowledged his presence. Now let us remember that it was protocol and custom for everyone in the empire to respectfully acknowledge highest government authority. And especially so to the man who was second only to the king. Haman's mood was destroyed. He was livid. No doubt he was humiliated because the king's gate was a busy place. And others in the regime would have noticed this blatant disrespect shown to Haman by Mordecai. I mean, we must understand, this act was worse than an insult. In the Middle East, life is controlled by the social dynamic of shame and honor. And it still is to this day. Haman was shamed. And there's only two solutions to erasing the shame. The offender has to profusely and publicly apologize or the offender must be killed by the person or family of the person who has been shamed. For a Middle Easterner, it's not possible to live without honor. 
And no price is too great to keep it, to regain it. The cultural principle that we're seeing here, shame and honor, is going to play a central role in what happens next. But Haman for now shows restraint. And he doesn't immediately react. Instead he goes home, calls for his wife and his family, friends, his advisors really, to come to him. Haman began puffing himself back up by bragging about his wealth and having ten sons. Having many sons was a sign of favor of the gods. And how he was hobnobbing with the king and reveling and how much power he now held in his hands. I mean, after all, he had arranged to have an entire race of people destroyed merely because he didn't like one of them. And yet, with all this money, with all this power, he was frustrated. He just couldn't be happy because of this darned Jew Mordecai. He just wouldn't give in to him. He wouldn't bow down to him. He wouldn't show him the honor that he and his position of preeminence demand. In verse 13, we overhear him on after his boast, saying to his wife and family advisors, but none of this does me any good as long as I keep seeing Mordecai the Jew remaining seated at the king's gate. You know, I find this so interesting. And it's perhaps the creation of a pattern that emerges from here forward in the Bible and in human history regarding the relationship between Gentile nations and Jews. It is fascinating that modern, oil-rich Arab nations, as well as the poorer ones and every kind in between, are obsessed with Jews and Israel. Obsessed. They can't be happy. They can't be content as long as a single Jew remains on the planet, let alone can they accept the notion of having Jews having their own tiny nation near to them According to the official population statistics of each of the 21 Arab or Arabic-speaking nations of the Middle East, their combined populations in 2014 are right at 400 million people. But they just can't live with, they say they feel threatened by Israel and its Jewish population of just a little less than 7 million people. A 60 to 1 ratio. The UN says that Israel occupies 7 tenths of 1% of the land mass of the Middle East. But that insignificant piece of land, that's just too much for them. And according to the, that's according to the Arab League. It's not fair, they say. Arabs occupying 99.3% of all the land in the Middle East isn't sufficient. And that remaining set dot seven percent that's the bane of their existence. They are willing to lose countless of their soldiers and their children to endless wars, spend enormous sums of their government budgets on military capabilities, and to make the Jews and Israel a central and hateful topic of their children's education indefinitely until Israel capitulates. Europe which is historically anti-Semitic, is openly and unapologetically sympathetic towards the Arab position. 
and the present USA administration is beginning to lose its moral high ground. And it has a new and perceptible tilt towards the Arab viewpoint, with that viewpoint being that the presence of a defensible Jewish nation in the Middle East is an unwarranted antagonism towards the Arabs. Why? Well, there's no logical or rational explanation for it any more than why Haman couldn't take it in stride that a single Jewish person in the entire city of Susa who showed him disrespect controlled his mood and his countenance. Mordecai's stiff-necked attitude of hostility towards Haman overrode the joy of Haman's vast wealth his blessing of ten sons and a loyal wife, and now a position of power and privilege and prestige surpassed only by the king. And even more radically irrational, Haman's conclusion was that the only solution to this irritation was that the Jewish people as a race had to be exterminated. Then he could be happy. And as we've learned, this madness is actually a spiritual issue. It's not a political matter. Good versus evil. God versus Satan. Because Haman, and today the Arab world in general, although not every last Arab, carries hidden within their souls the spirit of Amalek. And sadly, this same spirit has been dominant in Europe for centuries and now is surfacing in those who run our American government at the highest levels. And this is why the story of Esther is contemporary. It is relevant to Christians as well as to Jews. It is why we need to pay attention. We need to pay heed. We need to pray earnestly for Israel and the Jewish people to recognize their Messiah, Yeshua. Because for them, in this present world, there is no other deliverance possible. It was the same for the Jews of Persia. They had no hope. They had no means to save themselves as the enemy was too determined and too numerous and too powerful. They had every advantage. God was their only hope then. He is their only hope now. Well, Zeresh, Haman's wife, and his bevy of friends and his counselors advised that Haman build a wooden structure and thereupon execute Mordecai. Let me point out that while most Bibles, including the complete Jewish Bible, say that the structure was a gallows, that's not the case. The Hebrew word is etz, etz, and it doesn't mean gallows. It means tree or pole, or can be stretched to mean almost any kind of a wooden structure. Hanging by the neck until dead was not a means of execution in that era. Rather, the hanging meant to take the already dead corpse and to impale it. Hang it like a side of beef on a meat hook on that wooden tree or pole, that etz. The purpose was to warm, to desecrate, to humiliate. 
Now the one problem with this 14th verse is the suggestion that the wooden pole be constructed 50 cubits high. That is, this is at least 75 feet or the height of a seven-story building. And this was to be erected directly in front of Haman's house. And most scholars will say that such a height's ridiculous and can't be accurate. And I'll say that I tend to agree with them, but for different reasons than they usually decide upon. It was common then, as it is now, to use hyperbole in our everyday speech when we're, we're passionate or we're excited about something. And this hyperbole we find in this passage. And it should be taken in, in that sense, and it's, so it's meant to be taken figuratively. That is, <clears throat> when my wife comes running in that there's a cockroach the size of a Buick in her bathroom... <laughs> She doesn't mean, and I don't picture Bugzilla. (laughs) And when I say, I've raked a mountain of leaves in my backyard, it just means there's a big pile, not something resembling the Matterhorn. (laughs) The point is, the irate and inconsolable Haman was told by his family that he ought to build an impalement pole 50 cubits high. 50 being a round number, of course only because it was an exaggerated expression of taking the most extreme revenge. Not because they really meant this thing ought to stretch even higher than the palace walls. Needless to say, the mere thought of impaling that limp body of his nemesis Mordecai on his front lawn pleased Haman to no end. So he ordered it done. But also notice the issue of shame and honor is central to this story and to his decision. I told you earlier that for a Middle Easterner the only acceptable solution Haman had to recover his honor was to kill the one who had taken it from him because Mordecai was never going to apologize. And by displaying that corpse, that corpse of the offender, literally at his front door, in such a public way, then everyone will notice that he's avenged this public humiliation that Mordecai has heaped upon him. Everyone will be on notice that Haman's shame has been dealt with. His honor has been restored. To accentuate Haman's ruthlessness and amoral character, to end this chapter we're told that he was so delighted at the prospect of murdering Mordecai and having his shame removed it raised his mood and essentially his wife said there there everything's okay now just run along and have a nice time with the king let's move on to chapter 6 Esther chapter 6. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1093. That night, the king couldn't sleep. So he ordered the records of the daily journal brought and they were read to the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told about Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's officers from the group in charge of the private entryways, who had conspired to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king asked, what honor or distinction was 
conferred upon Mordecai for this. And the king's service answered, nothing was done for him. The king then asked, who's that out in the courtyard? For Haman had come into the outer courtyard of the king's palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he'd prepared for him. And the king's servants told him, it's Haman standing there in the courtyard. And the king said, well, have him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, what should be done for a man that the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, whom would the king want to honor more than me? So Haman answered the king, well... For a man the king wants to honor, have royal robes brought, which the king himself wears. The horse the king himself rides, with a royal crown on its head. The robes and the horse should be handed over to the one, to one of the king's most respected officials, and they should put the robes on the man the king wants to honor and lead him on horseback throughout the city streets, proclaiming ahead of him, this is what is done for a man whom the king wants to honor. And the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you said, and do this for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Don't leave out anything that you mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse. He dressed Mordecai and led him riding through the streets of the city as he proclaimed ahead of him, This is what is done for a man whom the king wants to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in mourning. And after Haman had told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his advisors and his wife, Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is a Jew, you will not get the better of him. On the contrary, your downfall before him is certain. And while they were still talking with him, the king's officials came hurrying to bring Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Well, as a matter of housekeeping, just know that there are no Greek additions to this chapter. The Hebrew version uh, that we just read is all there is. Well, verse 1 begins, That night the king was having trouble sleeping. That night is referring to the last sentence of chapter 5. So it's taking place within hours of Haman's meeting with his wife and his advisors and this decision to erect an impalement pole in front of his home for Mordecai to hang. Now I said last week that this section of the story reads like a comedy. Well, the coincidences and misunderstandings and role reversals and all the resulting embarrassments all pour out of what happens next. And it is funny. And it is most appropriate to laugh. Unless, I suppose, you're a Haman supporter. Don't care too much for the Jews. Just like many of us who can't quite enter our sleep mode for some reason, and we lay there on our beds staring at the ceiling or tossing and turning, we might turn on some music or, or read a book or in some cases listen to a person talking until we fall asleep. In fact, I have a grandchild who I'm told used to listen to my Torah class CDs to help him go to sleep. <laughs> Never quite decided how I ought to take that. <clears throat> So I guess Xerxes wasn't much of a reader. And he calls a scribe to come into his bedchambers with the royal records, essentially the minutes from the various meetings the king has. 
And he read them to him, the idea is, until he falls asleep. And wouldn't you just know it? The record the scribe chose just happened to be the time when Mordecai brought news of an assassination conspiracy and it saved the king's life. And when the king hears this, he he doesn't recall rewarding Mordecai for performing such a good and loyal deed on the king's behalf. And the king's servant looks at the records and says, no, nothing was ever done. Well, just at that moment, the king notices Haman's pacing around in the outer courtyard of the palace, obviously hoping the king might see him. He's in the outer courtyard because if he had come to the inner courtyard, he would have risked what Esther risked, coming unsummoned to the king. This requires death unless the king rules otherwise. So here is Haman on his way from meeting with his family, having just authorized the installation of an impalement stake to stick Mordecai on, hoping to bring this matter before Xerxes for his approval. I mean, after all, Mordecai was a Persian government official. And Haman certainly wanted the king's approval. And this happens at the same moment that the king has just realized he'd never properly honored Mordecai for saving his life. Haman despises Mordecai. He's arranged for his death. But the king thinks Mordecai is a great guy. And he's deserving of an award for saving his life. But even more... The king has already elevated Haman to a high position, but he's now promised Esther twice, it would seem, to happily grant whatever it is that her request might be. And of course, Haman's intent is the opposite of Esther's request. Haman is digging a pretty deep hole for himself right about now, but he has no idea of it. So the king... Being a generally gracious man, at least according to the Hebrew version, sees his second command standing outside. He bids him, come on in. Oh, what perfect timing, the king thinks. This couldn't be better. Because the king doesn't do anything without seeking an advisor for counsel. And now, such good fortune that an advisor, the second in command of the king, just happens to be standing there in his courtyard. So the king decides to delegate the decision on just how to honor Mordecai to the man who's about to murder him. Ah, but it gets better. As the king and Haman begin to converse, the king, he's thinking about Mordecai as the man he intends to honor. But Haman, he's thinking the king has to be speaking about him. Haman's a glutton for personal honors and recognition, so he's blind to everything else. After all, he just spent the day as the one and only guest of the king and the queen and was in the morning going to receive the same honor all over again. Who else could the king be speaking of but Haman? So Haman responds with his self-serving advice of what the king ought to do. And it's a doozy. First, the person being honored should be adorned not merely with royal garments, but with royal garments from the king's personal wardrobe. 
The honoree should then be paraded around the city, not on a horse from the royal stables, but on the same horse that the king uses, and the horse is to be adorned with a crown. And to top it all off, the king's most respected official should place those royal garments on that person, put that person on the king's horse, and then personally lead them around Susa, shouting and proclaiming that person's greatness. Man, this was chutzpah to the max. And it probably aroused at least a bit of suspicion by the king. Because kings learned early, at least if they survived long enough, to always be on the lookout for the slightest hint of someone who had their eyes on the throne. Essentially, think about this. Haman had asked for every vestige and symbol of the monarchy of Persia to be bestowed upon himself. Not realizing that the king had it intended for Mordecai. Now while we're not told so, it's hard for me not to conclude that Haman had become so swelled up with his self-importance that he was actually contemplating the possibility of himself one day becoming the king of the Persian Empire. I mean, had not everything else he had aspired for and sought worked out to his benefit? So once again, the theme of honor and shame arises. And since Haman is in the process of restoring his personal honor that had been taken from him by Mordecai for publicly humiliating Haman, What better way to assure that his shame is dead and buried than to be paraded around the Persian capital city in the king's own robes led by a high and known government official? But then the other shoe drops. In verse 10, the king says, Great idea! Now you go and do this for Mordecai the Jew. And by the way, don't leave out anything that you suggested to me. I like it all. Well, if you're a Jew reading Esther, by now tears are streaming down your face. You're gasping for air because you can't stop laughing. And it appears that the king has no idea of this hatred between Mordecai and Haman. See, his, his, his palace isolation that's much like for Esther disconnects him from the everyday life of his citizens. But you know, it had to be known far and wide of the enmity between Mordecai and Haman because it was always so public and visible. So how much more it was going to impact and the news was going to spread like wildfire when Haman leads Mordecai around the city shouting his praises. Haman wasn't going to be foolish enough not to obey the king, so he did as he was told and the humiliation was unbearable. So at the end of the royal pony ride, Mordecai, who had to be having the time of his life and relishing every second of it, dismounts, he walks back to his seat at the king's gate where this whole mess started in the first place. Haman heads for home, mourning his fate, wondering how it could have all come to this. He finds his wife, Zeresh, his friends, waiting for him, and he spills his emotions out to them, oblivious to the reality that a lot more than hurt feelings was at stake here. His wife and his friends can see 
what his hatred and humiliation have blinded him to. Since Mordecai is a Jew, and since Haman is the one who has ordered all the Jews of the empire killed, and since the king now sees Mordecai as a valuable ally that was worthy of the highest royal honor, Haman has just slit his own throat. He can't win. I have a friend who's a Palestinian Arab and a Christian. He was a former sniper commander for Yasser Arafat. And a, he was a former Muslim. He escaped the West Bank after attempting to kill a person that he knew. And this was in order to avenge an insult in his family. And he came to the USA. And here he met Christ. And it changed his life. He's now a missionary to the Muslims and he lives in Jericho. I once asked him why the Arabs hated the Jews of modern Israel so much. His answer surprised me. He said it was unbearable humiliation. Unbearable humiliation. He said that a question that the officers in Arafat's army often asked themselves in private was, how could so few Jews defeat so many Arabs? Battle after battle, war after war, since Israel became a Jewish state in 1948, the enormous, well-armed, combined armies of several Arab nations could not drive the Jews from their homeland. Worse, Israel had turned the tables and captured the West Bank and Jerusalem from Jordan, the Golan Heights from Syria, and the Sinai from Egypt. The Arabs hated Israel all the more because in their culture this was a matter of shame and honor. Israel had heaped shame upon them with their victories. And every time the Arabs tried to recover their honor by attempting yet again to defeat Israel, the result was nothing but more shame heaped upon them. Can you hear the echoes of the story of Esther as Haman, who hates the Jews with a fire that cannot be quenched, keeps finding himself defeated as his plans all go awry? Haman has every advantage. He is powerful. He is wealthy. He has hordes of advisors. And he has the king's ear. Anytime he wants it. On the other hand, Mordecai is just an ordinary man. A Jew. Whom God has decided shall survive. Haman can't win. But he can't understand why. And as a result... His hatred for Mordecai increases in direct proportion to his inability to affect the solution he so desperately desires. The extermination of Mordecai and all Jews. Chapter 6 ends when Haman, still fuming, hears a knock on the door as the king's officials. 
come to him, telling him it's time to go to Esther's quarters for the next banquet that he's probably forgotten all about in his despair. No doubt he's torn. On the one hand, he desperately wants the honor and the trappings of such a privilege as to be privately dining with the king and the queen. On the other hand, he just wants to hide under his bed for a while to lick the wounds of his humiliation and his shame. We're going to eavesdrop on that banquet and watch some pivotal happenings in chapter 7 next week.